Today, I wanted to start out with reading a familiar passage out of Matthew. And uh, if, if you don't know, Matthew is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, Matthew, the author of, of the gospel, the account of Jesus' life called Matthew, he starts his, his gospel in a very strange way. Yeah, he actually starts with a genealogy, which may not be, if you're trying to write a New York Times bestseller, may not be what we would do today, right? But, but it made sense in the culture, because um, he's trying to connect all the right people to Jesus, who, who is the Messiah, right? And so, um, but the strange thing is right in the beginning in his genealogy, he highlights all of these very unsavory characters, like people you really wouldn't put in the story if what you were trying to do was uh, convince people that Jesus was connected to all the right people. We, we did actually did a series on this a year ago, if you were with us. Um, we did a series on these different people. We looked at people like uh, Judah and Tamar and, and Rahab and Bathsheba that are all in the lineage of, of Jesus. And so he starts out kind of odd in that way. And then then he continues, and the next thing he does is, is bring up, to bring up the point that um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was found to be pregnant. And the baby wasn't the guy she was engaged to, right? Which is a little awkward, to say the least. And it was especially awkward in that culture. And so Joseph's really like wrestling with what to do, Matthew tells us that Joseph's really wrestling, like, what do I do? Obviously, I can't marry her. In fact, in the culture, um, being engaged or betrothed, you'd get betrothed, and it was legally you were married, but you'd, he'd go build a little house uh, or something and come back six months, a year later, and then they'd actually have the wedding ceremony and get married officially. And so he decides he's just going to quietly divorce her because he doesn't want to shame her but he can't go through with it. And you probably know the story well. Matthew 1.20, it says this, but after he, Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we're talking about. In these weeks, we're talking about a God who came to be with us for the purpose of saving us, to rescue us, to redeem us, a God who is with us and a God who is for us. I remember um, a number of years ago, I was uh, 12 turning 13 and I was traveling in Europe right about the same time as uh, time of year. And we were traveling in Europe and we were in England uh, at a youth of the mission base. And we had to go to, through France um, to Switzerland and Germany. That was, those, that was the next stop. And uh, we were going to go there for a while. My parents were doing ministry and speaking and stuff. And so this team was like, well, hey, we're, we're jumping on a bus. We're going down that way too. Why don't you just jump on with us? 
So we did, and it was great, and we drove down and, and got on the ferry across the English Channel at night, and it was, you know, the English Channel, and, and that, that is rough, let me tell you, especially between Eng England and Ireland. We rode that one, too, and that was crazy. Um, but anyway, we, we uh, ride across, and we get to France in the, in the middle of the night, and what we find out is as soon as we get to France, um, because of our passports and stuff, we, we couldn't ride any further with them on the bus. And so literally, like, we pull off the ferry into this little town. I don't remember where it was, but into this little town, and they just find a spot in town and drop us on the side of the road. And, and the, the hard part, the weird part, crazy part, there was nothing open. There was no 24-hour gas station. There was nothing open. It was just dark and rainy and cold. And here we were um, on the corner, on this street, no cars, no traffic. We, we found a little church. We were like, what do we do? Um, we found a little church. We didn't speak a word of French either, right? We found a little church. We knocked on the door thinking maybe it's unlocked. It wasn't. It was all locked up. And so we ended up going um, and finding a storefront with like an overhang. And we put our bags down and just like sat on our bags and shivered in the cold. My parents, two kids, right? <laughs> My brother's younger than me. We were a refugee family, basically. Experienced a little bit of what that was like, right? And um, we, we were there most of the night and it was, it was really um, cold. We needed help. We didn't know what to do. And this guy, I, I still remember, it was just before dawn. This guy pulls up, and he, he's driving past, and he sees us. He's on a motorcycle, and he pulls over. And we're trying to communicate, and, you know, we'd heard that French people really don't like Americans, uh, which I think is probably true. Um, however, this guy pulls over, and he's super nice, and he... Uh, He's trying to help us, but he doesn't speak a word of English. We don't speak a word of French. Finally, we like get the word taxi out, and he understands that, right? And so we're kind of, trying, kind of motioning and going back and forth. And, uh, and then he, he takes off, but he does something really significant. He had a spare helmet on his bike, maybe his girlfriend's or something. And he takes his, his helmet off, and he leaves it with us. Like, just to tell us, it's like, I'm coming back. Don't worry. And so he leaves, and he goes and gets us a taxi and comes back and uh, in France. And I'm like, whoa, right? And literally, like, in a very tangible sense, he rescued us. He saved us from the situation we were in. We got to the train station and uh, ended up making it to Switzerland with two very tired kids, myself and my brother. He helped us out of something we couldn't help ourselves out of at that point. And see, in the first century, the angel appears to Joseph, and he announces a savior. And as encouraging as that was, the, the angel's next words might have been a little strange, because he, he announces a savior, he, that the savior would save his people from their what? From their sins. And that may have been a little strange because they actually had a whole legal, religious system kind of set up for that purpose, didn't they? Come and do a sacrifice, and, you know, then you knew, okay, I can go away, and I'm, I'm okay with God, and, but then you blow it again real soon. You got to come back next year, right? And so this, this kind of concept might have seemed 
a little strange to them. But the announcement of the angel, really, when you think about it, it highlights a, a deeper truth of all, humili- or all humanity. And that's what Matthew starts his, his account of Jesus' life with. He illustrates that humanity is broken, that sin has separated us from God, that God came to be with us to deal with the problem of sin that separated us from God once and for all, that actually we can know we're right with God, not that we checked all the boxes and, and you know, got the religious thing, the system down just right, but we can know that we're right, that we have peace with God. You know, something I think within many of us in today's culture that we struggle with is the very idea of needing a Savior. I think we know we need help, a lot of us, right? In fact, I uh, just checked the uh, self-help section on Amazon yesterday. It gave me 16 results of 70,000. So, like, we're into, like, helping ourselves, aren't we? Now, there's some great tips and hacks and different things in there, but ultimately, I think um, it actually illustrates uh, something that's very true in our culture, and that is uh, we know we need help, but a savior? I don't know. Like, someone to save us from our sins? I, I don't know. It doesn't really resonate in our culture. And what we're going to see in John chapter 4 is that Jesus actually takes a very unexpected detour through Samaria. We, we, uh, we started looking at that last week. And he does this in order to be Emmanuel, God with us, to a very unlikely person. And to catch you up, if you missed last week, um, Jesus goes through Samaria, which is very odd. Uh, The Jews despise the Samaritans. There's hundreds of years of history. And they despise them. In fact, rabbis and Jewish people really only say the word Samaritan as a curse word. A little bit different than today, good Samaritan, right? Why was that story so shocking? Because Samaritans weren't good in the eyes of the Jews. And so Jesus goes through here, and then he stops at this well. He's hot, he's thirsty, he's tired, and a woman comes up, a Samaritan woman, at noon, which is a very unusual time to come to the well, because normally women come in the morning or in the evening. It's sort of the life of the town. That's where you catch up on the town gossip, see each other, visit before you go home. But she's there all alone at noon. Clearly, there's something, there's a wound there. And so Jesus offers her living water, and she wants it. And she knows that Jesus is is talking about something that only he can give, that, that there's a thirst she has that this water won't satisfy, that she has to keep coming back, but there's there's a living water, there's something deeper than the physical that Jesus can offer that will provide true life. And Jesus knows to, to get her there. She wants it. She's like, give me that. Jesus knows to get her there. He has to go through the wound, the thing in her heart that's, that's broken, right? And so he uh, brings up this very awkward statement by highlighting the fact that she's had five husbands and the guy, dude she's with right now isn't her husband. And, all, and she does what anybody does when, when we start poking at wounds is you deflect. And so she goes off on a theological tangent, right? But Jesus isn't deterred at all. He answers her question, but he goes after her heart. And finally, sort of as a last-ditch effort, she goes, well, I, I don't know. I just know someday the Messiah will come 
And I guess when he comes, we'll know everything. And Jesus looks at her in verse 26, and he says this. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And this is so profound because this, this little word, I am, uh, ego ami in the Greek, it, it's, the he actually isn't in there in the Greek. And it's the first of, Jesus will say this multiple times in the scripture. This is how when uh, Moses, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and reveals his name as I am in the Greek, when they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, this is how they translated it. And so it's a very profound statement here that Jesus is making. He'll go on to use it again. He'll say, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to get to the Father. And say, wherever you're from, you know, maybe you're just checking out God, church, and the Bible, and if that's you, we're so glad you're here. But wherever you're from, whatever your background is, you have to wrestle with this question. This is the most important question you can answer in life. Who is Jesus? What does he say about forgiveness? What does he say about eternity? It's, it's the most important question you can ask. And then also, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, the most important question you can help other people ask is an answer for themselves is that question, who is Jesus? Do you believe that? Really? See, here's the, here's the thing. The passage today is going to challenge us. Because I, I'm guessing if you grew up in church like I did, there's not a lot of new information here. In fact, uh, it's a very easy, some very easy things to nod along with and go, uh-huh, yeah, we know that. I agree with that, right? But here's the problem is to, to anyone watching our lives, many times you, you, they'd never know you believe it. See, there's this disconnect between what we, what we acknowledge we believe and then what we actually live out. And I think this passage is going to challenge us a little today. And so in verse 27, as we go on in the text, it says this, just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? They're like, they've been following Jesus around for a while. They know he's always doing unexpected things, right? So they're like, I don't know, it's just Jesus thing, right? But they're shocked. They're surprised. They had gone into town to buy some food. Jesus sent them in there because he's hot, he's thirsty, hungry. And uh, they are coming back from buying food. And here he is talking, not only with a Samaritan, but with a woman. And it's shocking that he's doing this. We talked about this, the high, how unusual this whole circumstance is. How shocking it would be to somebody in the first century, right? Because in this time in history, in this culture, they had a very low view of women. In fact, in the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Hebrew scriptures, the rabbis taught this. Here's a quote. It says, he who instructs his daughter in the law, which is the Hebrew scriptures, is like one who acts the fool. In other words, like there's this idea that the women just aren't worth very much. They don't get that from scripture, actually. What do you see at the very beginning? That God makes men and women together in the image of God, right? that they are made in the image of God, on task and on mission together in this earth. In fact, here's something in history. Um, where the teachings of Jesus have been followed, historically, the well-being of women and children has been elevated. See, this kind of whole cultural narrative of, oh, Christianity is just repressive and, you know, the patriarchy and all this, this is really new in history, 
And it is not accurate when you look at history. What you find is where the, where the teachings of Jesus are actually put into practice. The treatment of women, the treatment of children. You look at ancient Rome where they used to leave children out to be exposed or just die on the side of the road, right? Even the treatment of slaves in the culture. The trajectory that the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles created has done more to elevate the status of women and children around the world than, than anything else in history. And I know there's been some, some terrible instances where that is certainly not true in the history of Christianity, where Scripture has been twisted to justify the mistreatment of slaves or the mistreatment of women. When you follow the teachings of Jesus and the trajectory that the gospel sets, it is leading towards freedom. And it is leading towards this partnership in the gospel and the value and the dignity. Jesus elevates women. And this woman here, this woman, Jesus doesn't just talk to her. She ends up being the first woman evangelist in the New Testament, followed by lots of other powerful women we're going to read about also other times in the New Testament, that do incredible things to spread the gospel. And so that's just sort of a bunny trail. But we see Jesus, they're, they're shocked. And so verse 28 says this, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see, a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town, and they made their way Toward him. And I love this because she actually, remember, she's at, she would have brought her jar probably with a rope attached, and she would have brought that to, to the well so she could draw water. Remember, she tells Jesus, uh, when Jesus says, I'll give you living water, she's like, uh, You don't have a rope bucket. Where are you going to, how are you going to do that, right? I'm from around here. There's no stream around here. But Jesus, of course, is talking on a much deeper level. And, and she's focused there on her physical thirst, on the fact she has to come back and do this every day. It's just to meet her needs, right? And now something happens in this conversation in Jesus revealing himself. I am in this powerful way. She actually just leaves her jar and runs back into town. Now, maybe she left her, maybe she left her jar just to help Jesus because he's thirsty and probably the disciples are too, right? Kind of like that guy left his helmet to let us know he was coming back to help us. Maybe she leaves it for that. You remember Jesus had asked, and I think this is so powerful and profound when it comes to sharing Jesus with others and just being involved in relationship in the life of others. Because Jesus comes and he's hot and he's thirsty, not the typical picture. He's tired, exhausted. We don't think of Jesus too much like that. And he sits down on the edge of this well. And, and when this woman comes up, he not only speaks to her, which was shocking. They would not speak. A rabbi, a religious leader would not speak to a woman in this culture, especially out, in the, out alone, right? But he not only speaks to her, he asks her, he's vulnerable, he asks her for help and for a drink, which would be like doubly crazy to somebody in the culture because it's like Samaritan cooties, ew. Oh, and then we're going to find out, you know, we found out Jesus knows this woman's history, right? So serious red flags there. But he's willing to be vulnerable. And see, sometimes it's your need that actually initiates a relationship that allows you to speak into people's lives. And see, this is something I think in our culture, we're so individualistic and we're so like self-sufficient. We don't like asking for help. 
A lot of times we're happy to give help, but when it comes to actually asking for prayer or when it comes to actually being vulnerable and letting somebody see our weakness, uh, we don't like doing that, right? And then we especially, we don't like being put in other people's debt. See, there's this thing that happens when you allow yourself to be vulnerable and express a need and you allow somebody else to come in and you get over your pride and you accept that help. There's a relationship and a bond that forms. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, right? And if somebody invests their time and energy into you, there's a bond that forms. And I'm telling you, this gives you the ability so many times to have relationship and to speak into people's lives just because you're willing to get over your pride and be vulnerable and ask somebody for help. It forms relationship. It builds relationship. And you can see this right in this story. And, and there's also, I think, as she leaves her jar, there's, there's a deeper truth here, too. And that truth is that all of a sudden, this, this thirst within her is met. As Jesus reveals himself to her, and, and you see the belief entering her heart, you see this aha moment. Like, Jesus, first, he pays her the greatest honor. He knew her. He knew her background, and yet he invites her into relationship. In spite of knowing how wounded she is, in spite of knowing the shame, why she's out here alone at noon, he knew all that. And yet he honors her. He invites her into relationship. And so it meets her thirst in a way that her thirst has never been met before. And all of a sudden, she just forgets about it because there's something more important, and that is she just has to go tell other people. The Messiah is here. Could this be? I think it is. Come meet this guy. She has to bring people to Jesus. Come and see, she says. It's the same thing Philip says to Nathaniel in chapter 1. Come on, you got to meet Jesus. you got to meet Jesus. She just can't help but running back to tell others. And now, check it out, her past becomes part of her message, and, and she doesn't care. Like, she, she highlights the uncomfortable, shameful part of her life that everybody knows, but nobody wants to talk about, you know? And she just lays it out there, and it, God uses that as a tool to draw other people to Jesus. Because when she meets Jesus, the grace she experiences is so overwhelming, she can't help but share. And, and you notice what she did? In this little verse, she actually speaks, like with her mouth, about Jesus. I think this is a really important verse because most all of you nodded and agreed when we said this was the most important thing, you know, that we need to help others answer is this question of who Jesus is, right? But for so many of us, the way you get around to that is you're like, well, I'll just be their friend. Friendship evangelism. I'll just love them, serve them. We'll, we'll take cookies over to the neighbor at Christmas. We'll cut their lawn when they're out of town. We'll be a good neighbor. Well, that's good. It's a lot better than the opposite, right? There's some Christians who give Jesus a very bad name just by their actions. So that's a good start. But see, where most of us go is, is you just never get around to actually talking about Jesus because it's awkward. Oh, you love people care about them, maybe even pray for them. But for so many people, it just never gets around to getting over the awkward and actually opening your mouth and having a conversation about Jesus. Hey, um, you know, what do you think about God? Hey, do you guys go to church? 
hey, you want to come sometime? Man, here's what Jesus did in my life. Asking, like, you're going through a hard time. Can I pray for you? Not just, oh, I'll pray for you. Can, can, I, can we pray? Why? Because I believe God's actually alive and active. Here's how he's, he's done. I've seen him do these things in my life, and maybe, maybe he'll show up in your situation and do something. Do you trust in Jesus? Man, Jesus changed my life. Do you trust him? Why? Oh, yeah, I know it. Why? Because he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. And as much as I don't want to make this friendship awkward, I want to spend eternity with you more. See, the hard part is, for so many, like the story is we just never get around to that. You just do life with people. You're friends. But you don't influence people for Jesus. She, she, opens her mouth. She speaks. She says, come and see. And, and the witness to Jesus is an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus. It just is. Verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? All they're thinking about is lunch. Anybody identify, right? <laughs> Verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And I think during this whole conversation, Jesus just has this giant grin on his face because he's just had this amazing encounter with this woman and God's grace, and, and he, he sees the belief springing up in her heart. He's so excited. She's running off to tell others, and he's just he's jazzed, right? We don't really use that word too much anymore. He's, he's excited isn't he? We used to say stoked back in this day when I tried to surf. Never really could, but tried. And see, here's the thing. Like, I think I can identify with this because Jesus literally is so excited. He, um, he's like, I eat food. He forgets to eat lunch, right? And here's something I've noticed about us human beings is uh, we kind of actually really care about what we eat, don't we? Like, it's kind of a big deal to us. In fact, here, I told them this last night, and I think actually it might help some of you um, get on board. See, like, even now, think of, like, Chick-fil-A. Oh, the beautiful, like, the nuggets, the perfectly fried nuggets, right? And some of you, you're like... Last night, they were dreaming about going and getting Chick-fil-A because they can go Saturday night after church, and you can't Sunday morning. And so as we fill up, yet one more reason to go to church to try Saturday service and see if it works for your family. I mean, you could do it because you, you love Jesus. You want to help us create more room. But hey, Chick-fil-A is, is a bonus, right? We actually... we. Uh, we care about what we eat, don't we? And Jesus says, you want to know, like, Jesus is so excited that he's like, you want to know what my food is? To do the will of God. Like, doing what God put me here. Man, I am energized like I never have been before. 
And some of you, you know this because you've experienced this, either in, in a time of like ministry or even just in, in the thing that, you know, God's wired you up to do and, and you got something you love doing and, and you look up and it's like three o'clock and you forgot to eat lunch and it doesn't matter because you're just so like in the zone. And Jesus is like, you know what? Um, for me, doing the will of my father, that's it. And when we talk about doing God's will, I mean, really, you know, Jesus talks about actually for his followers, when the rubber meets the road, what's important is doing the will of the Father, just like Jesus did. Like obeying God, obeying what Jesus has taught us, right? And when it talks about the will of God, I think this is something we often kind of get confused and spun out on as Christians. Because there's several aspects of the will of God that, that we can kind of, I think, get off track on, right? Um, I think... Well, let's just start by saying, when we talk about God's will, there's his sovereign will. Like things that God has said, this is going to happen. There's an aspect to God's sovereignty and his work in creation and, you know, the, the, the truth that he knows when the sparrow falls, all these kinds of things, right? Our lives are in his hands, all those things. There's a truth to his sovereign will. Yeah, um, it says in, in the scripture about, the, you know, when Jesus was born. When the set time had come, God sent his son. Like when God had it all arranged, and in fact, we know God raises kingdoms and he uses them for his purpose and he brings them down, right? And so Daniel, the prophet, prophesies when the coming of the Messiah will be. And Paul says, hey, when the set time had fully come, when God had the ground prepared with the Greek language all over, ready for the gospel to go out into all the nations, Jesus came. Like nothing could stop the sovereign will of God. The things that he's purposed and decreed will happen. Things he's prophesied hundred years, the return of Jesus, it's coming. Only the Father knows when, right? But it's coming. We know that. Then you have an aspect of God's will, which is God's desire. The revealed will of God. God's desire for humanity. God's desire for the way we live. This is the way, walk in it. What is the way? Following God, loving God with all your heart, loving neighbors as yourself, right? Following him, obeying what Jesus has said, living your life that way. In fact, whatever you do in life, wherever you go, what does Paul say? Do everything in the name of Jesus. Do everything for his glory, for his fame. Do everything as if you were doing it unto him, right? Live your life when it comes to your finances and when it comes to your, your sexuality and when it comes to the way you treat each other and the way you, you, husbands and wives and kids and parents and kids interact. We look at what, what, what's the revealed will of God and then we do our best to line our lives up with that. And when we fall short, there's grace. We repent. We come back to him. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to, to let us live out the desire will of God, Right? I think it's part of why Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's desire. It actually says he desires that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So you have God's sovereignty, his decrees, you have God's desire. And then I think you have God's specific direction for us. And there's there's this interesting thing that I think we do with this. There's a couple of errors. One is, for many people, you just don't seek God at all. Much life on autopilot, you're making the, all the calls, you're making all the decisions, 
really want, unless it comes down to, you know, a big deal thing like somebody's sick or whatever, you just really aren't seeking God over the situation. You're just plowing ahead. And that's a very dangerous thing to do, especially as a follower of Jesus. So, so you cannot seek God, but then the other thing that it's easy to do is over-spiritualize finding the will of God or seeking the specific direction of God. Like, I have things that God's clearly, um, I feel like, spoken to us in the past, you know, before we launched a church and um, dropped scripture in my life that just encourages me, see to it that you complete the ministry I've given you. That was a scripture that jumped out at me several years ago, and I have it pop up on my phone every, every uh, three months just to remind me. It's usually strategic, right, because there's plenty of Monday mornings I get up, and I'm like, well, that was lousy. Maybe I could make more money doing something else. Yes, yes. No, God's called me. God's called me. I know I'm where God's led. See, and there's that specific direction. So either for many people, you just don't seek him or you actually, um, you over-spiritualize it, which means like everything is, is just like, God, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And many times it's an outworking of insecurity. That every decision you're like, I don't know what to do. And it's an outworking of a lack of faith, actually, and lack of trust in him. Because I've found when God wants to communicate, you seek him over a decision. Like, really, you, you don't need to get up and pray about what color socks to wear. That, that he's placed a series, given you things to do. You, you, you do the things, right? But yet you invite him into those decisions. Um, you, you pray about businesses and schools and spouses, who to marry and all that. But then you make decisions and, and you move forward too. And sometimes he speaks very clearly. It's interesting, I see, that Jesus uh, says he had to go through Samaria. That's, that's kind of counterintuitive because Jews in the first century, they didn't go through Samaria. They went 10 hours around Samaria just to avoid Samaria. Curse word. And yet Jesus has said he had to go. Now, we don't really know why. I, I believe it's because the Holy Spirit compelled him to go. Like, hey, you need to go through Samaria. And in obedience to the will of the Father, he's like, all right, let's go through Samaria. But maybe there was just road construction. Landslide, they were clearing it out. See, both things happen in our lives, don't they? There's times where you pray, and or you, there's times where you just like, I just know this is what God's saying. And if you experience that, you know exactly what I mean. There's other times you pray about it, you're like, I don't, I'm not getting anything here. Okay. You make a decision. Even Paul, like, they're praying about trying to get in here, and it says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go, and we just assume that there's, like, closed doors, right? There's things, sometimes God just closes doors, and you're banging on a door, and finally one opens. You're like, well, I think this is the right one. And so many times God confirms that, right? But Jesus, he goes through Samaria, and so maybe he was compelled by the Holy Spirit. He knew I've got a divine appointment. Maybe there was road construction, and he shows up hot and dusty as well. Like, man, we're like five extra hours, or, or maybe not. He's like, hey, that cut five hours off the journey. I think it was the first. But either way, when the woman shows up, that's a divine appointment, isn't it? And see, this is the key when it comes to following God's specific will for our lives is sometimes we hit a detour. Sometimes a door closes. We go over here, and we look up and go, wow, oh, okay, that's why you had me here, God. That's why, we, that's why they were late. That's why this happened. 
because you had this circumstance and this person that you wanted me to speak into their life and impact their life. You're doing something here. You're working here. And I'm part of the story and I get to participate. And if I pay attention and I'm attentive to the Holy Spirit, you don't just blow right past those things. You don't just ignore him. When you listen to the Holy Spirit, when he prompts you, you go, okay, hey, how can I pray for you? Or, oh, wow, this is kind of strange. Oh, that's why God has me here, because he wants me to have this conversation. That's what it means day in and day out to, to seek God's will and to follow him. And sometimes, like, you just know. Other times, doors close, you knock, there's an open one, you walk through, you pray, it's not right, it's not wrong, or it's, it's okay, it's right. It's not sinful, not wrong. I think we're going to go down this way. And then you find out why God had you there. And sometimes, like, I think a lot of times we stumble into God's leading, right? But you got to be careful. Because I think where this gets over-spiritualized is, is where from a lack of trust or something, you're constantly trying to, on everything, get specific direction. And sometimes you're too tied up with your feelings. Okay, true confession. I remember this one time, Christian camp. In the mountains, it's a wilderness guide. There's a cute girl on the trip, one of the leaders. We were talking, and I'm like, I really like her, right? Maybe, maybe I'll marry her. So I'm in my Bible. <laughs> nope. Uh, maybe one more try. <laughs> nope. I don't recommend that as a method of seeking direction from God. Because what are you trying to do? You're just trying to confirm the feeling, and feelings are very deceptive, right? And sometimes feelings actually influence you to do things that are um, counter to the will of God. God's leading will not contradict his, his revealed desire, the will of God that's desired in Scripture, right? His leading will not contradict the way you're called to live your life for him. It's not the will of God to be sleeping together before marriage. I know you feel it, right? But it's counter to scripture. It's not the will of God to, to go after somebody in a relationship who completely doesn't share her faith. Why? Because God knows the pain and heartache that'll bring and the tendency for both of you to walk away from your faith. Now, if you find yourself in either of those situations, there's grace. And God actually says, hey, like, like stay in it. Not in the sleeping together. Um, you can get married, move out, whatever. Um, but stay in it. Pray for the other person if, if they'll let you follow Jesus, right? So there's grace. And I've seen God move in those kind of situations so many times through prayer and faithfulness. There's grace. He moves. But the point is, be careful when you, when you try to seek his will and you make it subject to your feelings. It gets really loosey-goosey in those moments, right? There's a good chance it's just the extra jalapenos on the pizza. So the, the, the will of God, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, my food is to do the will of my father. Verse 35, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. 
Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of the labor. And what he's saying is, hey, open your eyes. God's working here. You're just thinking, oh, no, no, now's not the time. Oh, I'm just going to be, be, be you know, kind to my neighbor. And, and God pops an opportunity into your lap to actually speak to them about Jesus and pray for them. And, and he's saying, just open your eyes. God's working all around. He got there before you did. You realize that, right? He got there before you did. He, he was working. And he says, hey, there's hearts that actually God has been using other people to prepare all around you. You didn't have to do it. You just get to open your mouth when he prompts you, and you get to share Jesus and, and reap the benefits. It's a beautiful thing. Open your eyes. Guys, look, look what just happened, and all you guys are worried about is lunch. God's doing stuff. He's doing stuff. You want to begin to get excited about your faith? Are you really living life as a co-laborer? with what God's doing? I mean, he, he's doing work and he can get it done without you, but he wants to use you. And, and trust me, there's something like when you, when you figure out like, oh, God was working there and I paid attention to the Holy Spirit and got involved and then God got to use me this way, it'll light you up like nothing else. Like all of a sudden, your faith that has grown stale and dry will, will be so vibrant again because you're actually living the way he calls us to live as disciples. What feeds you? Like, is it just literally the next thing? This is a good test of your heart. Uh, is the only thing that, that, like, you get excited about is the next season on Netflix or the next step rung up the ladder of success? That is it just entertainment? Do you find yourself just having to always buy the next thing and it's shopping and then the next thing and then the next thing? And that's really all that lights your heart up? If so, maybe there's something God wants to do when you engage with the work that he's doing. See, there's a reality in Scripture of eternity. We all, I mean, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you acknowledge that. Yeah, it's the most important thing. There's a reality, and there's always also a reality for believers of eternal rewards. And we don't know exactly what that looks like, but according to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, for those that that use what God's given them in this life for his glory and his kingdom. There's a reality of eternal rewards. Eternity's a long time. There's a reality of eternity that, that you and your loved ones will or won't spend there. Doing a funeral this Friday for a wonderful man that some of you here know, and he used to sit right back there. Just passed away. I got to go sit with him, still very uh, alert. Thank him for his life. And you know what's as sad as it is to lose someone? He's 85, wonderful life. But as sad as it is to lose someone, there's a joy in knowing he is with the Savior and we'll be together again. There's a joy in celebrating a life of somebody who really lived their life for Jesus. As a pastor, I've done some funerals where that's not the case, where there's no assurance, where all you're really doing is, is you're trying to bring comfort. 
they're very difficult. Verse 39 says this, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. And see, here's the problem for some of you. See, for her, it was her willingness to bring her wound to light that made her effective. It was the fact that she's like, I'm not hiding this. He told me all this. She actually brought attention to it, right? And God can use the stuff in your past, the stuff you're struggling with right now, as he brings healing to that. He can use that for his glory. See, many people think you got to wait to share Jesus till you've got all your stuff together. <laughs> no, this woman didn't. In fact, let me tell you, the most effective people for, for Jesus are often those that just come to faith. They don't have all their stuff together. But come on, honestly, you don't either, do you? And God could use your woundedness to serve others. In fact, he may want to use that very place that has so much pain to bring healing to others. And to bring them to Jesus. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to that woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said now. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You know what did it for him? The presence of God. They invited him to stay. These were outcasts. They didn't let the, the pain, they didn't let the division, they didn't let all that keep them. They said, Jesus, stay. It's an interesting contrast to, to Nicodemus who wanders off last week, and we don't really know until later how the story ends. But these guys, they just embrace. They embrace him. And you know what? You need to know him personally. You need to have your own relationship with him. You need to, to learn to live and experience his presence and take risks for him and see him come through. That's when... Uh, Faith actually really becomes your own faith. Because you know what? People are going to let you down. People you respect are going to let you down. But when you, when you truly encounter Jesus, and when you truly engage your life in his purposes, it'll light you up like nothing else will. And you'll find meaning and you'll find purpose. Would you stand? As we close today, I just want to ask you, um, what would it take to actually move the needle in your life on some of this stuff? Because I know, like, most of us, we know this. This wasn't new information. Oh, yeah. Living your life for his kingdom, sharing Jesus. But for so many, the experience of, of what you're actually living is very different, isn't it? What would it take to move the needle? Would you ask him? Like maybe there's a specific thing that he wants you to do. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray every day for this person. I'm going to write a letter to this family member. Just sharing my heart. I, it's so awkward in person. I'll, I'll write him a letter. 
Maybe God will use that. He used that in my grandfather's life. My, my mom would do that because it was so awkward. He used that to bring my grandfather to faith. I'm going to invite somebody to come to church. I'm going to go a little bit further than just being a good neighbor. And then what might he want to use in your life to reach others if you didn't have to pretend you were so put together? Maybe there's something, there's an area that he wants you to find and experience healing in so that you can share that story with other people and it can draw them to Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to say thank you for my friends, Lord. And if there's any here that have not embraced your incredible grace, the heart of Emmanuel is that you came to save this world, to save your people from their sins. And Lord, there's some here that they need to embrace that for the first time. And if that's you in the room, just cry out to him. Acknowledge that you need him, that you're a sinner, that you want to follow him with your life. Ask him for forgiveness and to welcome him into, or welcome you into his family. Lord, for everyone else, I pray you would just show them exactly how this lands, that you would give them a specific next step and then give them the courage to take it. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what we celebrate in this season, that you are God with us. We love you. We worship you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.